Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. Thank you for taking the time to listen. My name is Andy McLennan, and in this episode of the podcast, which is made for Pride Month 2022, we will examine the issue of anti-trans discrimination and conversion therapy. To set some context for this episode, in September 2021, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe published a report in which it, quote, condemns with particular force the extensive and often virulent attacks on the rights of LGBTI people that have been occurring for several years in, amongst other countries, Hungary, Poland, the Russian Federation, Turkey and the United Kingdom, end quote. Now, the report goes on to state that In the United Kingdom, anti-trans rhetoric, arguing that sex is immutable, has also been gaining baseless and concerning credibility at the expense of both trans people's civil liberties and women's and children's rights. With me for today's episode are Shay Brown, director of the trans rights organisation Transactual, BASWA member Rachel Hubbard, Rachel is a senior lecturer in social work at the University of the West of England and Jacob Sibley, director of LGBT Youth in Care. Shay, Jacob, Rachel, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you all doing? Very good, thank you. That was Jacob. That was Jacob. Uh, and Rachel, you well? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Great. And Shay, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Um, busy as ever. Good man. And uh, here, where is everybody? I'm, as always, in Belfast. Shay, where are you? Um, I'm in London, um, South London. Okay. Is that where Transactional are based? We're based all around the country. Our sort of board of directors are um, scattered across the country, as are all of our volunteers. Okay. Um, and Rachel, you are... are you, I'm in you're Bristol. At the moment, yeah? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was going to hazard a guess that the University of West England <laughs> was in Bristol, but I wasn't 100% sure. Uh, yeah. Jacob, how are you doing? Where are you? I'm good. I'm in Manchester, uh, in the northwest of England. Okay, representing the north. Wonderful. Okay, great. Well, listen, thank you all for being here. Now, let's get into the meat of the conversation. For anyone who's listening, who's unsure of what trans identity is, I'd be keen to begin there. Shay, could you start us off by explaining what it means to be trans? Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to explain it is the, the label of boy or girl that you're given at birth doesn't match the gender you know yourself to be. Um, I think sometimes the use of this phrasing trans identity makes it sound like something you identify into, whereas um, for trans people, it's just something that you are and it's not um, something you opt in or out of. Um, And trans people have always been around um, but being trans can create lots of barriers that make life harder, um, such as discrimination, waiting times for gender affirming care and lack of understanding. Thank you for helping with that understanding. Uh, Shay, that's really helpful. Now, you say that trans people have always been here, but in here and now in 2022 in the UK, do we know what percentage of the population are trans? We don't know. Um, the estimates are 0.6 to 1%. But like I said, there are no firm figures. However, because the 2021 census asked about it, we'll have a clearer idea. Um, It might be, though, that there's an underestimate um, for those people that were 
um, uncomfortable even within it, the confidentiality sort of arrangements. Some people might have yes. been uncomfortable to say. Yes, absolutely. Do you have any idea when those census stats are going to be available, just out of interest? I'm not sure. I think it's another couple of years yet. Okay, okay. So we'll be, we'll be waiting. Grand. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of reports which I read recently in preparation for this episode. So a report from your own organisation, Transactual, the Trans Lives Survey 2021, and also the LGBT plus anti-abuse charity Gallup, their report, Transphobic Hate Crime Report 2020. Now, both those documents outline deeply concerning rates of transphobic abuse in the UK. And government figures for the year ending March 2021 indicate that 2,630 transgender identity hate crimes were reported to the police that year. Shay, can you tell me about the types of abuse and discrimination that trans people face? It can happen across all of all of the aspects of our lives. So for children and young people in school, it can be transphobic bullying, sometimes quite horrendous. Um refusal of school staff to meet basic needs like calling someone by um, their correct name. In the workplace, it's employment discrimination when applying for a job. Whilst at work, so for example, um, sort of a, good, a good proportion of people responding to the Trans Lives survey reported um, transphobia from colleagues and that transphobia... Um, happened more frequently for trans people of colour. Um, so it's quite often linked with other forms of discrimination as well. Um, at home, people can face family rejection, um, conversion practices, um, outright transphobia, and also um, transphobia from carers. So in our survey, 53% of disabled trans people that had carers coming in to support them they said that um, they'd experienced transphobia from them. All of those things can result in homelessness. So respondents to our survey, 27% had experienced homelessness at some point in our lives, and that was higher, again, for um, black trans people and trans people of colour. Online abuse. So I've noticed even in the past few weeks an increase where Transactual as an organisation is blocking several accounts a day on Twitter, and 99% of respondents to the Trans Lives survey had experienced transphobia online. Then we've got street harassment, um, more frequent for um, trans women, harassment on public transport, and then there's, of course, you know, physical assault. And behind all of this um, and acting as something that sometimes acts to legitimise the views of people sort of enacting this abuse or these assaults is media transphobia. 97% of respondents to the Trans Lives survey had seen it and 93% said it had impacted their experiences of transphobia from strangers. Um, So it's happening throughout our lives and across our lives. I mean, in terms of the increases, if we look back at government figures going back to 2012, they indicate a year-on-year increase in anti-trans hate crime. That coming up to 2021, where I said there was 2,630 transgender identity hate crimes reported to police. However, data from the 2018 Government Equalities Office National LGBT Survey it indicated that 88 percent of transgender people did not report the most serious type of incident they experienced, or did not report it personally. So, not only do we know that anti-trans hate crime is increasing. 
but we also know that it's been underreported. Can you tell me why so many incidents um, of anti-trans hate crime are not being reported? Yeah, um, Gallup, um, a um, LGBTQ plus um, charity supporting um, people that experienced hate crime and abuse, they released a report into um, survivors of sexual violence last week and their experience. And the people were basically worried that they'd be discriminated against by the police, worried that they'd not be taken seriously or thought that police wouldn't do anything, a fear that it would somehow make things worse, that they wouldn't be believed, um, that they wouldn't be believed, sorry. Um, and previous poor experiences, um, you know, 45% of the people um, that did report to the police said that they were unsatisfied or very unsatisfied. And um, in the context of sexual um, assaults, of the 119 people that had reported, only three said the perpetrator had been convicted. So there's, you know, a real feeling of, I can report this, but nothing will happen and it'll place me at risk of discrimination or making things worse. And then, again, fears of discrimination um, around, you know, based on racism as well for some people. Yeah, so intersectionality is a real issue. Yeah. In relation to that. I mean, were there any examples coming out of that survey of police forces that were getting it right, or is it uniformly bad across the country? No, there were there were examples of um, people being well supported, and in those cases, it was sort of people um, feeling understood and respected, and um, that often comes when there's a. Um, a sort of specialist, whether it's a um, community outreach worker, can make a difference sometimes. Um, in my role with the National Teaching Advisory Service, we've seen an increase in number of young people that don't want to attend school because of fear of attending school, because issues around transphobia and uh, homophobia that they have had have not been dealt with effectively. Um, but these things are not reported to the police because they're not seen as hate crime in the context. They become under bullying. So in the same way as quite a lot of sexual assaults that happen in school become kind of bullying issues rather than actual sexual assaults, that, we, you know, and I'm not suggesting we want to criminalise a load of children, but the need to educate um, and move forward within school environments and help schools understand um, that they are potentially, by their nature, excluding children and young people who are trans um, by their uh, sort of binary bias that they operate within and the cis-normative operations of school and heteronormative operations of school actually don't welcome children who are LGBTQI+. Um, but what we're actually seeing is a lot of young people saying, well, I'm not going to attend school, then I'm just not going to be there. Um, and instead of the schools really confronting those issues around those other children, what we're seeing is, oh, what support can we give you to keep you out? And I think that is slightly worrying as a trend. Jacob, one, one term you just used there was cis, and that might not be a term that everyone listening is familiar with. Could somebody explain what that means to be cisgendered? I can explain that if you like. <laughs> um, I mean, for, for me, being cisgendered means that my the sex assigned at birth that, that Shay was talking about, that, you know, somebody's identified you physically at birth, that aligns with how I feel about my gender identity. So it's that match as opposed to sort of trans people experiencing that kind of mismatch. 
Thank you for clarifying. That's really helpful. Yeah. So following on from that, um, Stonewall produced a report, I think it was a couple of years ago, about young people and their trajectory out of school, particularly LGBTQ plus young people. Um, And I think there's a a general trend where where those who have kind of experienced homophobic, biphobic, transphobic bullying, and and usually, you know, it's the trans young people that have much more kind of significant impact for this. It has a kind of long reaching consequences on access to further education, access to higher education, access to employment. It can kind of impact on, on homelessness, on social deprivation. So there's a real kind of significant long lasting effects from those times that schools don't effectively address the LGBTQ plus pupils experience in schools. And it may well be that's something that social workers are picking up further along the line, but don't necessarily see where that trajectory starts. So that, you know, the real importance of schools getting a handle on this early is vital to kind of longer term effects on, to, as I say, kind of in this context, kind of trans young people's experiences. Uh, if I could just add to that, that if we look at the intersectional experience of young people in care, we know the education outcomes for children and young people in care are some of the poorest in this country and that there have been so many measures put in place to address this and yet we still see very poor outcomes at GCSE level for young people in care. Um, if you then look at, if you're a trans young person who's in care um, or if you're a black trans young person who's in care, your intersectionality will really quadruple and multiply multiply the amount of barriers that you're going to face to success in employment um, and access to education in later life. And I think that we really need to take those things into account for all social workers should be looking at, they're getting that better understanding of trans issues and how they impact on children and young people so that they can help those children and young people progress further. But particularly then when you look at children and young people with disabilities or neurodiverse young people and how we can take that understanding forward to make sure we get the best adult services for those young people moving forwards. Yeah, I was just going to um, add to what um, both Jacob and Rachel have said in the um, shutout report from Stonewall that Rachel was talking about. Um, another theme that came up um, was uh, people that were young carers, um, young carers, um and especially LGBTQ plus young carers being more likely um, to leave education or not be in employment um, because of those multi- multiple stressful factors going on in their lives. It's, you know, for a sort of a trans young person who's also a young carer. And it's like Jacob said, it's that real intersectionality that social workers need to be aware of and be considering. And all of these issues are going to impact in terms of life satisfaction, quality of life. We come back to the the government's national LGBT survey, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. So it compares um, levels of life satisfaction. So compared to a UK average of 7.7 out of 10, trans women score 5.5, as do non-binary people, and trans men score 5.1 out of 10. Now, to what extent do you think that is down to the discrimination faced by trans people, which we've been discussing for the last few minutes, Jay? So discrimination can play a big part, but also dysphoria has a huge impact. So dysphoria is where you don't feel right about something about your body, perhaps, or it can be sometimes social dysphoria. You don't feel right about the way um, other people see you. So for me, for example, I might experience dysphoria on the phone because I'm worried about my voice. And I think, oh, people are going to think I'm a woman because my voice is a bit higher. Um, 
So that dysphoria can have a huge impact and that's impacted by NHS waiting times and availability of medical transition. It's sort of, it's one of those cruel jokes in life that um, there's a perception that trans children and young people and indeed trans adults get access to medical transition really easily and really quickly, whereas actually we're looking at a, um, do believe it's a four or five year wait for um, gender identity development service and similar for adult services and then a lot of hoops to jump through after that. So that's a huge, huge um, contributing factor. Um, But also, you're right, discrimination, um, it can be experiences of trauma related to discrimination, um, minority stress. So that's not necessarily linked to trauma, but ongoing sort of microaggressions and sort of experiences of everyday transphobia that sort of you kind of get used to but they add up um, and that stress of having to sort of, you know, overcome lots of barriers in your life. Just so, just to get me read on this, when you talk about everyday transphobia, you could give us a couple of examples maybe. You know, I'm, I'm aware of the, the concept of people being dead named. Is that is that yeah. what you're talking about? Um, yeah, although that's not dead naming, um, calling someone by their old name. It can be transphobia, but it might not be. Sometimes it's, you know, an honest mistake. But yeah, being called by been called by the wrong name um you know picking up a newspaper and seeing what they're saying about trans people now and sort of being portrayed as abnormal or something bad getting funny looks in the supermarket when you know my friend was telling me the other day she was out with her kids and uh, one of her kids said oh mum you've got a funny look again um you know that sort of thing and it's the the feeling of sort of constantly having to battle through these things is exhausting. It is exhausting for me, and I'm I'm really quite privileged in many um, many regards. Um, and sort of Rachel and Jacob had both touched on the sort of economic impact as well. So if you think about someone's um, life's lifespan, thinking about experiences of bullying at school, which can impact. Um, plans for future education and there's links in um linked to that in um Stonewall's um school report from 2017 that people um trans children young people in particular were saying that their experience of bullying had impacted their plans for future education um there's money you know money worries about uh, or money worries that come as a consequence of workplace discrimination so being looked over for promotions struggling to get the job in the first place or having you know having had issues for people that have come out later in life having had issues in the workplace and then um wanting to make a career change and often sort of having to come lower lower in on the scale um the salary scale and then you know people paying privately for treatment because it's something that's going to be able to it's something that is going to help them to cope with dysphoria. And then, you know, housing issues, which can be related to family issues and, you know, thinking of young people um, being made homeless, LGBT, um, Q plus young people are more likely to have been homeless um, than anyone else. And it's sort of, it all creates this sort of, yes, we've got the discrimination, direct discrimination. We've got minority stress. We've got trauma. We've got dysphoria. 
But then it's those economic things that people don't always think of that, that are impacted by discrimination. But it's not, it's not, um, people don't always experience it. And then multiple oppressions, you know, if you're disabled or if you're a person of colour, it's additional things. Yeah, I wanted to kind of add to what Shay was talking about because my professional background is working with older adults and with working with people with disabilities. Um, and I think there's, there's sometimes a risk that we tend to talk about kind of um, younger trans people quite a lot, but actually the experiences of older trans people, you know, you know, there's quite a lot of research, there's been research at the Swansea University about the real fears that older people have for the risk of facing discrimination in care in older life. So, you know, will will residential care settings recognise or understand, you know, a trans experience or, you know, if you're in need of kind of intimate personal care, what's that going to feel like? Are you going to feel confident and trust that people will treat you with respect? And I think that, you know, that's a lot of that. You know, it's not just about the discrimination itself. It's about the fear. You know, a lot of people avoid situations because of the fear of what might happen, not just you know, having experienced maybe transphobic incidents themselves. So, yeah, I think that there's that there's issues of discrimination kind of all across people's lives that, that and, you know, we've already talked quite a bit, I think, about kind of intersectionality. And, you know, from each direction that we think about as social workers, there's, you know, there, there's potential and actual kind of experiences of discrimination that we need to be really, really kind of aware of. Jacob, you were trying to come in? Um, I was just coming up on the point of um, people being dead named and where we have had issues within social care, as, as Rachel mentioned, that, that the sort of systems don't support people using their real name. And it's um, you end up in, in meetings where social workers might come in that haven't met a young person and come in straight away and use their dead name, instantly creating a barrier between them and that young person. We've had um, care providers that have refused to use a child's actual name because they haven't got permission from a social worker or some other body to use the name that the child wants used for them um, and where they haven't actually acknowledged the identity of the child because they haven't had a meeting about it yet to make those changes. But actually moving forward from that, even when you've got all of the care providers and social workers in agreement of supporting a young person, which can be a challenge, um, we then still have administrative systems that will use people's dead names and will always refer back to them because you can't change a system. So once you're in a system, it kind of already discriminates against you just by the purpose of being within it. If that makes sense. I, I, can, I can only imagine that further disempowers a, a young person mm. who's feeling vulnerable in the first place. So my experience is uh, as, as a social work practitioner, kind of moving on from what, what Jacob said, this is kind of, I think, a, a kind of broader issue than, than, than just young people in care. I think this is a local authority data systems issue. I've not yet met a local authority system that is able to manage a non-binary identity. Um, often the, these systems are set up, they're very kind of big, bureaucratic, um, very, very slow to change. But yeah, one of the, the main things is it's impossible to recognise non-binary identities. And how, what position does that then put you know, a practitioner maybe wants to be positive and wants to support that person, but actually has no way of doing that within the way that data systems work. That's instantly kind of a form of microaggression because that's going to just keep on repeating, repeating, repeating. Now, Shay, I just want to come back to those stats on levels of life satisfaction. They showed that trans men have lower levels of life satisfaction typically than trans women. Do you have any idea where that might be? No, I was trying to think about that. It's sort of, 
it's hard to say, and I think it's something that we'd need digging into more. Um, the Trans Lives Survey found that trans men were more likely to have experienced homelessness, but trans men are typically less likely to experience um, sort of the discrimination that trans women or non-binary people face. So it's a really interesting one to consider. Um, and yeah, I'd be I'd be really interested um, to see someone do some research into that and find out what what has led to it. Thank you, everyone. This has been really helpful setting the scene in terms of anti-trans discrimination. But I mentioned at the top of the conversation that we'll be discussing conversion therapy. So let's move on to that. To get into that, can someone please give me an overview of what conversion therapy is? It's one of those terms that we hear about. People might have read about it in newspapers, but in terms of what it actually means, Shay, can you give us a give us a bit of an oversight? Yeah, I mean, at Transactual, we use um, the words um, conversion practices or abuse. Um, because conversion practices are abuse and it's not therapy. Um, In short, conversion practices are attempts to change someone's gender identity, their sexual orientation or their romantic orientation. So, for example, um, an attempt to make a trans person um, cis. Um, What it isn't, um, which is where there's some confusion, it isn't... um, therapy that supports someone to explore their identity. Um, So when we're talking about conversion practices, we're not talking about um, therapy that supports someone to explore their identity. We're um, talking about active active attempts to change someone's gender identity or their orientation. Thank you, Shay. That's helpful. And in Baswa's response to the government's consultation on conversion therapy in inverted commas we do make that point that it should be referred to as conversion practices or conversion abuse um the term conversion therapy is very much in the public discourse hence why this episode is going to refer to conversion therapy as well so that people actually i suppose know what what we're talking about um i'm keen to know about the context in which conversion therapy is practiced um i'm, I'm looking back into in the olden days of, uh, of those who probably know about wreckers and the what they called the feminine boy project that was run in California, where a lot of conversion practices were developed in the United States, and it was mainly around families wanting their child to be their gender they'd been assigned at birth, really, or to act in that way. And it's generally based on a, a world of transphobia and homophobia that were rife in that. I think that we have seen a push towards. Um, understanding conversion therapy in the religious context because of uh, more media attention paid to that. There's Netflix films around that and so on. And I think that people understand that more easily. Um, But I think there's also, there's a kind of backdoor conversion therapy, which happens, conversion abuse, where people are engaged in other forms of therapy and they are not having their gender affirmed during that therapy. And in that process, they are being questioned about who they are. So particularly when we look at young people and adults who have contacts with um, social care, a lot of their identity is pathologised a lot of the time. It is questioned rather than um, adults and young people who don't have quest- who don't have that contact with social care. And in pathologising um, the experience and the being of a person, we're then questioning the validity of their existence. And I think that is one of the cruelest things that happens 
within that context. And it's not, so it's not a sort of an exclusively religious context, because I think that's, you mentioned that, Jacob, that's kind of presumed at times, yeah? No, not not at all. I mean, certainly um, the, the development of uh, therapies to change people from uh, people regarding sexual orientation and trans identities from the 60s and 70s, um, people be aware of the use of electric shocks, people be aware of talking therapies, and then when you move forward to Wreckers, then you get to um, therapies that are meant to be more positive um, and, and more um, affirming of their their birth assigned gender, and that was that was the real sort of context they were working in. But it was often parents' views were really they promoted the idea that you should be scared of your child growing up um, as an LGBTQI plus person and because of the discrimination they would face, and therefore it would be better to change them into a cis straight person. And that was the fear that really motivated people to engage in those um, practices, I think. And I think that's still probably quite prevalent. And as we see in in the UK, with the growing uh, levels of hate crime and um, exclusion of all LGBTQ plus people, that actually you can see why parents would have those fears and other family members. What we then find it harder to recognise is maybe people, um, adults who have uh, learning disabilities or who are neurodiverse, are they being provided with gender-affirming contexts through their care, through their treatments that they may be having otherwise? And if they're not, then actually some of those could really fall into um, sort of gender abuse really, within that sort of context. So I recently watched that film, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Has anyone seen that? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was set in the USA. So I don't know how accurate it was in terms of its depiction of conversion therapy. I thought the, the depiction of evangelicalism was scarily accurate. It's something I'm more familiar with than conversion therapy. Uh, did, does anyone have an opinion on, on how kind of well that portrayed the process? I, I, we only get what we get from the media. I think unless you've been through it, um, I mean, my only direct friend who's experienced conversion therapy was sent by his mother who was from West Africa to West Africa where he was um, horribly abused for three months and came back with all the symptoms of someone who'd been horribly abused for three months but he was still gay so that's that's my only experience yeah and I think it's really important um sort of recognize where you know those sort of quite horrible sort of electroshock treatments that we sort of think of as in the past and the more the more obvious forms of conversion practice um you know sometimes there's that level of family abuse of taking um taking someone um overseas for that and you know other other sorts of family abuse can be you know things like where someone has had access to healthcare withholding that or withdrawing it um you know and sort of forcing um someone as, as part of an abusive situation into um medical detransition for example if we're talking about an adult that's in an abusive um relationship um and yeah and i think some counselors have been reported to um I say offer, offer is a very um, strange way of phrasing it, but some 
counsellors sort of act, you know, actively telling people that, oh, you're not trans, you just need to accept that you're a gender non-conforming woman or, you know, something like that. Um, and that's that's very different to exploratory um, therapy because, you know, we know that most, most counselling is not, telling what someone what to think i'd love it i'd love it um there's been certain times in my life where it would have been good if my counselor had told me what to do um i would have preferred it in some ways but um it's very distinct i would say see the the point when i was talking about that film the miseducation of cameron post that was a representation of conversion therapy done in a religious context and in terms of like physical interventions, there was nothing which could be seen there as physically abusive. But in terms of the concept of spiritual abuse, you know, telling somebody what is right for them. Going back a few months, we did an episode with Lem Cisse, the, the poet, and he was talking about, we weren't talking about conversion therapy, but we were talking about spiritual abuse in the context of his upbringing. Um, and, you know, having the devil prayed out of him because he was a naughty child, that sort of thing. But the concept of being told that you are, yeah, you've got the devil in you and we need to pray it out of you to fix you. You know, I don't know if anyone in the conversation here has a religious background, but just the impact that that can have on someone's psyche, you know, to be told that you're fundamentally and thoroughly broken and we need to pray that out of you. Now, I know that that is the message in terms of the brokenness or, you know, needing to be changed in any context of conversion therapy. But, you know, I just I just think that is the, the impact that must have on an individual. I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah, I was at a um, trade union um, conference recently and there was a um, discussion about conversion practices and they um the delegates um you know quite um rightly sort of voted to condemn conversion practices but one of the delegates spoke about their experience of being prayed over and having you know the demons being asked to leave them and that you know and that is very much something that happens to you know someone of it happened um 10 15 years ago but someone of my sort of generation in the UK. Um, and, you know, it's their parents at the time they were sort of 19, they were home from uni and their parents thought they were doing the right thing by them at the time. And, you know, since then it's all been sort of reconciled, but the the vivid nature with what um, with which they spoke about it just shows how much it has stayed with them, you know, it's very, very potent sort of sensory description of that experience is, you know, very, very upsetting. And I can't even imagine what it was like for them. It brings in the concept of eternity to the whole thing. It's not just this life, you know, you're essentially, that's you forever. Jacob? Um, what I was going to say is it's around professionals in safeguarding boards, recognising what conversion therapy is. Because I think at the minute we struggle with what is, you know, acceptable religious practice, for example, in praying over a child and what is abusive practice. I'm praying over this child to stop them being naughty. Therefore, I'm doing this, you know. And I think that if we don't have that training for safeguarding boards, they're not going to know um, whether that be vulnerable adults or children. Social workers are not going to know how to recognise what is abusive conversion practice um, and there's a long way to go in that because a family may choose to send their child to a private psychiatrist for example to 
promote change in them with that agenda, but it might not be as open in that. And how are we going to help uh, anyone? So you're talking about schools, youth workers, sports clubs, even recognizing that children are having these things inflicted upon them, um, that people are enabled to make positive choices as adults, that their safeguarding needs are met, um, and that we're not allowing these things to happen right in front of us because we can't actually recognize what's happening. In terms of the prevalence of conversion therapy, I was looking at some stats from Stonewall. So one in five trans people have been pressured to access services, to suppress their gender identity when accessing healthcare services. And then moving on to a survey by Gallup, we mentioned Gallup earlier, um, 5% of LGBT people explained they've experienced conversion practices driven by family members. And among those who identified as trans or non-binary, this proportion increased to 11%. So we've talked about conversion therapy in terms of what it does to the individual. You know, uh, it's it's an abuse. The other issue, though, then, is looking at the impact on that individual that has arisen from their own family, requiring them, telling them, you need to do this. There's a sort of, there's a there's two levels there of, of, of trauma. You know, what, what does it mean to an individual to be told by your own family, you need to get fixed? I think it's just really, really, I mean, it's, kind of answering your, your own question really because I, I think what impact that has is about trauma it, it's about you know my family doesn't think I'm I'm you know how I feel is valid you know I'm not good enough for them it's one of the reasons why we have all the statistics that we have about you know the the mental health of of, of trans people who are much more likely to experience severe mental ill health about um, you know rates of, of suicide amongst trans people, it has its outcomes in um, trans people's mental mental health because of rejection, because of fear of being isolated, because of you know you know I have these feelings they're going nowhere. I'm being told that they're wrong in whatever way, whether it's medically or whether it's because of kind of your religious values. It's all about saying who you are is wrong and what and needs correcting in whatever whatever form that is and that's obviously going to have a significant impact on people and that impact is, you know comes out kind of visibly through through trauma in response to that the government has outlined its plans to outlaw conversion therapy for gay and bisexual people in england and wales but it's confirmed that the ban would not cover conversion therapy with with trans people do we know why trans people are going to be left out of that ban in short it's transphobia um, well, you know, you're welcome to expand on that, Shay. That, yeah. that was a short answer. Accurate, no, it is, a short, it, it is a short but accurate answer. Um, and I found it really interesting that the news about um, about trans people not being included in the ban, I was very interested to see that um, that came out just a couple of weeks before the local elections. Um, the... And in that short couple of weeks before the local elections, we had the um, we had lots of things happening in quick succession. So we had the um, the um, the sort of statement that trans people weren't going to be included in ban on conversion practices, which is not something that the um, minister for women and equalities had been told about. Um, there's reports of that she arrived back from a um, trip to India and um, was um, allegedly um, not best pleased that these decisions had been made at number 10 rather than through her department. Um, within that short lead up to the local elections, we had 
um, Sajid Javid um, uh, saying um, things about trans people's access to healthcare that were just inaccurate. Um, we had um, the Prime Minister um, stoking stoking culture wars around trans people's participation in sport, and we had lots we had lots of government ministers within a very short space of time um, coming out and saying negative things about trans people. Um, it's calmed down a bit since the um, since the local elections, um, but then you know on. Um, at the weekend, there was um, there was um, something in the press um, that the attorney general had suggested that teachers don't. Um, this is very much an in inverted commas. Don't pander to um, to um, trans and non-binary children, young people, um, and it was you know it's quite remarkable because it um, showed uh, sort of it's been widely condemned by. Um, sort of lots of organisations and, um, yeah, quite remarkable and sort of lack of understanding of um, that trans people of all ages are um, protected by the characteristic of gender reassignment in the Equality Act and sort of in direct contradiction to what the law says and what um, indeed um, DFE guidance says. And so this this is all part of a um, bigger picture of um worryingly um transphobic comments coming um coming from the current government it's been suggested that the decision the government's decisions was also influenced by the interim report from the independent review of gender identity services for children and young people now that was uh, commissioned by nhs england it's known as the cast review the the lead uh, sorry the chair of the review is dr hillary cast that was published back in february um, there was just a point in the review, something to flag out, flag up from that. The review points to differences in the approaches advocated by uh, clinicians, um, some more strongly affirmative and some more cautious in terms of the use of physical intervention. So the suggestion that that review fed into the government's decision, I'd be keen to have a have a perspective on that. I think there's, yeah, there's more than one perspective on that because I, if it was informed by the CAS review, the CAS review in some respects is quite, balanced or certainly tries to be balanced. Um, I would be more inclined to, to, to see particularly the leadership of the, the current government um, being more informed by kind of wider right-wing thought that, that's actively hostile to, to trans people. I would love it to have been informed by something in the nature of a, of a, of a review of, of, of um, gender care for young people, but I, sadly I, I don't believe that that's the case. I think this is a, a wider political issue. Um, but I think that the CAS review is interesting in what it does. It, I dislike intensely the balancing of affirmative approaches to gender care for young people with caution, because actually an affirmative approach is quite cautious, um, but it's somehow it's, it's by using the term cautious, it suggests that somehow being affirmative of a young person's gender identity is somehow reckless. That's kind of the impression that that's giving. And I think that that's really concerning that that language has been used in a review that tries otherwise to be more balanced. It puts forward the very clear um, idea that um, not acting in terms of supporting trans young people in their identity is a neutral act. So 
not giving blockers where they're needed, not providing supportive care where it's needed. It's not neutral. Waiting is not a neutral act. For young people, um, the progress of puberty particularly can have a significant impact on um, young people's mental health. There is a growing body of evidence that that supports this view. Um, Certainly, um, um, I'm currently researching the experiences of parents of trans young people and this is something that comes up quite often is the impact of pubertal changes that are unwanted, that cause distress, the type of dysphoria that Shay's been talking about um, can have a huge impact. So not acting, not doing anything is hugely concerning. So caution as a way of describing not actively giving treatment is misleading. So um, yeah, I would be cautious in using the word cautious. (laughs) See what I mean? I just want to come in there in terms of the cast review. It does it flags uncertainty about the use of hormone treatments. Doctor Cast recognises some you know people will be worried about um, the suggestion that hormone treatments could be stopped, um, but she does point to a lack of information in terms of the long term effects and explains that further work is needed to understand them. Does I mean that- that's that's also interesting in itself because there's actually quite a large body of research. What that is doing is kind of parroting a, a, a notion that there isn't a body of research. So the use of puberty blockers is long established for many, many decades for precocious puberty. So for delaying puberty where it might occur in kind of seven, eight-year-olds, for example. Um, So the outcome, so the the longer-term effects of that are quite well known. Um, There are ongoing kind of trials um, and research around the use of puberty blockers in in gender care. So it it is newer, but I would say it's not that there's no evidence. I think that's... That's, you know, a, a little bit curious, really. Well, it's not curious as an approach. It follows a, a path. Um, I think there's often a lot of misapprehension that people don't understand the current model of gender care for young people. There's a presumption that it's really easy to get on puberty blockers. It's not. There's a presumption that it's really, you know, uh, children get treated um, when, oh, you know, with cross-sex hormones which again are, you know, even harder to get to, Um, you know, this can be not just with the waiting list, but actually the length of time it goes, it takes to go through the assessment process for um, the Gender Identity Development Service in the UK is very long, takes a lot of justifying. A lot of the parents I talk to about, you know, just how stressful and hard it is just to get anywhere in terms of getting to treatment is, 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 you know, doesn't feel very well acknowledged um, in, in certainly in the wider kind of public discourse. There's a sense that this is easy when anybody who's been through that process. And there is research about this. So Cal Horton has been doing some really interesting research recently that was um, published last year that talks about the experience of parents going through the Gender Identity Development Service. And they talk about how they don't feel believed, how they have to fight, how much effort they have to make to make sure that their children's voices are heard. And it's not reflected, you know, as powerfully in the language of the cast review as, as certainly I would like to see it, because it doesn't bear out the experiences of, of, of parents in the research and of parents that, that kind of I speak to in my work. Thank you, Rita. I'm very keen to bring Shay back in. But just on the, just before we do move it on, there is a point around the use of puberty blockers. And you're talking about, you know, well, um, an evidence base and support. To the example just I did want to flag up in this context was I'm aware that earlier this year it was Sweden's National Board of Health and Welfare. They announced new protocols avoiding the use of hormonal treatments for most under 18s due to concerns about their risks and the lack of evidence as they saw it. There are examples then of countries that are essentially moving in, in the other direction. 
Yeah, and there are also more other examples of countries that are moving towards more supportive approaches like Australia. So I think, you know, I, what has been happening in the UK has had a lot of influence. I think a lot of the language and, and the conversations that have happened here have also informed the um, bans on treatment of trans young people, the outright bans that are now kind of becoming law in Texas and Alabama. I think what we're seeing is a real kind of polarisation at the moment. Um, but my concern is a lot of the time that, that, that fundamentally it's not accurate. There's a lot of talk about not, en- not enough research when there is research or there's a misuse of older discredited research that comes up a lot. There's a piece of research that talks about an 80% detransition rate that has been widely discredited. So there's lots here where I wonder about the motivation of the people that are making these decisions to restrict care because I don't feel it's about trans young people's best interests. I think it's more about political agendas. I'm just, and just on that point, I'm sure Dr. Cass would counter that and say her interests are in the best interests of her patients. But Shay, if you, if you want to come in there. Yeah, I had um, sort of a couple of things um, to say about um, puberty blockers, really. So one, one common misconception is that um, because puberty blockers for trans children young people young people are used off label there's a misconception that they're experimental they're not experimental they're off label um as are many many painkillers uh if if a um child or young person has a chronic illness and they're admitted to hospital most of the medication that they're on will be off label and people use the contraceptive pill off label um, to help with um, period pains, for example. So um, off-label use doesn't mean experimental, and especially if children and young people, most or a good chunk of medication is used off-label. Um, and that's a very helpful point. And just to, just to again, just come back to the, the cast review, which we've mentioned a couple of times, that point is recognised in that document. So thank you very much, Shay, for flagging that up. Something that we talked about earlier in the discussion, something that you mentioned, I think, a couple of times was appropriate sort of therapeutic um, opportunities for young people who are exploring their gender to, you know, to be supported in those discussions. Now, I think it's worth drilling into that a little bit more because this is in the context of a coalition of organisations, which includes the Royal College of General Practitioners, the Royal College of Psychiatrists and NHS England. They have collectively signed a memorandum of understanding on conversion therapy in the UK. They want to see conversion therapy banned in relation to both sexual orientation and gender identity. And that document, which we'll put in the show notes, it explains that um, they're not they're not trying to stop psychological and medical professionals who work with trans and gender questioning clients from performing a clinical assessment of suitability prior to medical invest, in, intervention. Um, they want to ban abusive uses of conversion practices. So just if we could just look at that in a little bit of detail for maybe a minute or so, what would an appropriate um, exploratory therapy look like in that context? It's providing the space for individuals to explore their experiences of their gender. Um, And, you know, if they're expressing a desire um, to socially or medically transition, helping them to sort of explore the outcomes that they might wish to achieve from that. Um, Sometimes it's about... A professional making sure that someone's able to make informed choices. Um, but 
ultimately it's what any any therapy or um indeed medical care should be and that it's person centered whether that's a young person whether it's an older person whether it's someone who's middle aged whoever they are it's person centered approach which is ultimately at the roots of any good practice yeah i mean i i think there's a really good point from what you what you've said there anyway because person centered is about starting where the person is and I think that's where a lot of positive trans exploratory therapy can be really, really good is starting with the person. You say you're trans, right. OK, now where do we go from this point? What do you need? Where do you want to go? And I, I think it's one of the things that concerns me most about having a ban on conversion therapy that only applies to LGB people and excludes trans people. Is actually, it seems quite unworkable, is that you start from a point where, for example, you have a trans man who is gay. If you're going to say it's okay to work with him to on his gender identity if somehow to invalidate that you're also saying you're also not gay you're in a straight relationship with your for example cis male partner and it it, it just doesn't make any sense how how can we exclude and ban some one thing whilst leaving space for something which actually invalidates that person's identity anyway um i think that it's also, this massive emphasis on the binary approach to understanding what gender identity means. And until we can actually take on board that gender is in a wide spectrum of millions of different identities that many people can experience and that some people experience different identities at different times, and that's cool and that's completely fine. And we should be supportive of everyone as they are at all points. The um, general uh, public opinion, which is very false, is that uh, trans is like a switch. You were at one end of the spectrum and another end of the spectrum, and we can switch you back through conversion therapy. And yet nobody is completely at one end of the male spectrum or one end of the female spectrum, um, either emotionally or physically. And we have to actually use a lot more education to help certainly social care professionals working from cradle to grave, to understand that in a far more open way. Thank you, Jacob. Rachel, Jacob, Shay, thank you so much for taking part. We're going to wrap up. I just want to clarify before we do, the discussion has focused around a ban on conversion therapy in England and Wales. The government is looking, the UK government has taken that forward for England and Wales, but that's not the situation across the whole of the UK. In Scotland, for example, the government has committed to introducing legislation by the end of 2023 to ban conversion therapy. And in Northern Ireland, politicians passed a non-binding motion calling for a ban on conversion therapy in all its forms back in 2021, though no Northern Ireland executive currently exists, so nothing further can be taken forward in relation to that point. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you all. This has been a really, really helpful discussion. Jacob, Rachel, Shay, thank you for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. It's been great.